there's another way that there are some unique men in our church family who are gifted to do certain things to lead the church and to, well, to serve the church in unique ways. That is this group of men we call our deacons. And what I would like to do is I'd like to invite our current deacons, which means Randy, Mike, and Tim. Gordon is out today because he works every other weekend, and so he's working today. But I want to invite you guys to come on down front and sit up here next to the repasses because I'm going to be talking to y'all today. Now, Doug is out back with his uh, grandkids getting them settled in children's church this morning. But these men, by the way, in fact, Tim, why don't you go ahead and stand up? Why don't you guys just stand up real quick and turn around and face everybody for a second? These men are the ones who the church has previously selected in previous years, and um, we, we've joked about it. The term is installing deacons, um, like you would screw in a light bulb, I guess. I don't know. Um, but we have installed these men as deacons. Now, some of you guys know Brett Nicholson. We also had serving as a deacon in the last year. Uh, Brett has stepped back from his role as a deacon, not because there's anything wrong, but because he's got some unique gifts and talents that God's allowing him to use in some different ways to serve the church and still some very deacony kind of ways with some of the things that he's doing. However, uh, he's serving with our youth and also serving in a different capacity that you'll hear more about in the days to come. So with that in mind, these three guys plus Gordon Howard are our existing deacons, and we're going to be adding Doug Krause to the mix here shortly. All right, so you guys go ahead and have a seat. Now, what is it that these guys do? Some of you have never really been around churches that had deacons, and so the word deacon may be unfamiliar to you. In fact, the only time you've heard deacon is when you hear about the Wake Forest demon deacons, um, which is ironic beyond all measure because that was originally a Baptist school, and uh, you know there's just a lot of layers with demon deacons at a Baptist school. But we're not going to touch that because our deacons are good men who love the Lord and serve his church faithfully. But as we're talking about deacons this morning, here's what we're going to do. We're picking back up in the book of Acts. So if you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to go ahead and open the Bible to Acts chapter 6. Now, we've been studying through the book of Acts, and in the book of Acts, what we're seeing is how God worked through the early church in the days shortly after Jesus ascended to go up to heaven. Now, as Jesus ascended to go to heaven... You know, oh, yeah, Randy left his Bible because I, I didn't warn Randy that he, we were doing this. So um, he knew that we were doing the deacon thing, but he didn't know that I was going to make him come down front for the preaching part. But this way I can yell at all of you guys at once, and I can even spit on you from here. I guess not because of Anyway. As we're going through this, though, we've been looking at the book of Acts, and we've been seeing how the gospel spread in the early days of the church, how God took what he was doing through Jesus and those original 12 apostles and made them go from disciple to apostle as he sent them out with the gospel. Now, what we're seeing is the church is still centered in Jerusalem. It hasn't begun to spread out far beyond Jerusalem, but at this stage, we've been seeing things going really well for the early church. God's adding people to the church so fast that we've lost count. Remember, it started with 3,000 that one day, and then all of a sudden we said that there were 5,000 men who had been added to the church. And then we, last time we checked in, we saw that it was just an innumerable amount of people that God was adding to the church. Things have been going well. They've, they've had a couple of rough bumps in the road, though, but they've had some outward opposition, right, because you saw that they were uh, dragged before the Sanhedrin because they'd been preaching about Jesus. The Jewish leaders didn't like that. And we saw the, the, the apostles rejoicing with great joy that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Now, that's pretty much where we left off with things as we were uh, taking a break there at the end of Acts chapter 5 to celebrate Easter together and Palm Sunday together. So now as we're picking back up in Acts chapter 6, we're seeing the church addressing what could have been an incredibly divisive problem. 
In fact, we're going to go through and explain some stuff because as you go through this, some of these terms may not exactly be familiar to you and things may not make sense when you first read it. So we're going to explain what you're looking at here. But what we're going to see is that as the church took care of this issue, they set aside a group of men to serve the church in a unique way. Now, the word deacon never appears in this passage, although the idea of service, which is a related word there, the diaconia, that's related to that word deacon. That's where we get the word deacon. Um, As we look through that, you're going to find that although the word doesn't show up here, this is most likely the prototype for the office that we now recognize as deacon. So what we're going to do is as we walk through this passage, I'm going to explain to you again what we believe our deacons here at Christiansburg Baptist are called to do to serve the Lord and his church, okay? Now, some of you are like, great, I don't care. Well, here's what I want you to see overall. The call of a deacon is the call to serve, okay? The call of a deacon is the call to serve. Now, as we establish that this morning, I want you to see that there's some fluidity that God doesn't nail things down. And here's the other thing. Now, last Sunday, we were blessed to have 134 people here. Um, In case you're counting, in case you you like numbers and things like that, that was three more than we had the last Sunday before lockdown. So that was kind of a neat day for us to see God bringing so many folks back to worship and things like that. Now, when you do the math there, there's 134, and we've got one, two, three, soon to be four, and Gordon is five deacons. That's a lot of people for five people to take care of, six if you count me, right? So here's the thing. As we talk about the call of a deacon to serve, I also want you to be reminded that it's the call of every believer to serve Christ in his church. Now, God has called deacons to do so in a very unique way, but it's the call and responsibility of every believer to be serving the Lord, serving the church, and serving his people, okay? So as we go through this, be taking notes on what you can do to help as well. Now, as you notice, uh, when we look at this word deacon, whenever you hear that word, if that's a weird word for you, just replace it with the word servant, right? So again, we recognize that all of us are called to serve Christ in his church, but there are a couple unique roles that the Bible does enumerate for the church, One is this office that I hold, which is pastor, elder, overseer, bishop. Um, Those are all different words that refer to the, the office that I hold as pastor. And then the other is the idea of deacon. Um, by the way, as, as the pastor, elder, overseer, um, that means that I lead the church in preaching, teaching, praying, and guiding us to grow more like Jesus. That's my job. The other role is what we're looking at this morning, which is the role of deacon. And as we'll see, God gives deacons to the church to help the pastors, elders, overseers, to make sure that people's needs are met both inside and outside the church. One author puts it this way. The two offices of overseers, which is pastor, elder, shepherd, bishop, overseer, overseers and servants are meant to complement one another. In fact, actually, Alex, I think this could go on the screen. All right? So the the two offices of overseers and servants are meant to complement each one another. One is the office of pastoral oversight. The other is the office of practical service to the needy. So as you think about the difference between what God called me to do as the pastor and what God's calling our deacons to do, my job is the job of pastoral oversight. That's the calling that God's put on my life. The call of the deacon is the practical service to the needy, both inside and without the church, okay? All right. Now, so with that definition in mind, let's look at what's going on here. Look at Acts chapter 6. Read just verse 1 with me. In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. Now, let's explain what all that means. Keep in mind, let's start at the end of that, that daily distribution and the widows. 
Back in those days, there was no welfare system. There was no Medicaid. There was no Medicare. There was no Social Security and things like that. So if you had a widow whose husband died and she didn't have any family to take care of her, she was going to be destitute. There was no real way for her to make money for herself. She was going to be in a difficult place and unable to care for herself. And if she didn't have anybody to take care of her to to help support her financially, she was going to go poor, go hungry, and be needy for the rest of her life. Um, some of you guys may remember, there's a story where Jesus talks about the widow's mite. You know, she had the two cents, basically. It was last thing to her name that she put in to the offering at the temple there. That was all that she had to live off of. That was common occurrence. That in those days, if you didn't have somebody to take care of you and you were a widow, it was going to be a bad deal for you. So if you remember, we talked about the early church was very generous, that they had been selling their property and distributing it to any who had need. What was happening was there was then a daily distribution of food or of financial resources where the widows who were in need could come to the church and they would receive either food or financial help every day to be able to meet their needs and take care of them. So the church took care of those who could not take care of themselves. That's a great reminder for us as we think about it, by the way. In those times when they weren't able to take care of themselves, the church stepped in to help. Now, it says that there was an issue, though, because there was a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews. Now, what's all this stuff talking about? Well, in Jerusalem in those days, the natives spoke what would have been called Aramaic. They spoke a language called Aramaic. And as they were there, they would likely know a little bit of Greek as well because of the need to trade and do business. But they primarily spoke Aramaic. And the customs that they followed were still deeply steeped in Jewish ancestry and tradition. So they were very traditional Jews. Those are the ones that are referred to as Hebraic Jews. They spoke Aramaic. They'd probably grown up in the Holy Land, if not in Jerusalem itself. And they acted more like Jews who had always lived there in Israel. Okay? There was another group, though, called the Hellenistic Jews. The Hellenistic Jews, for some of you who can remember back in the dark recesses of your brain when you took a Western Civ class, you might remember the term Hellenism, right? That was when Greek language and culture spread throughout the ancient world and everybody started speaking Greek and they started putting gymnasiums everywhere and all those kinds of things. Well, the Hellenistic Greeks were ones who had learned to speak Greek and they were not only speaking Greek, but they were also raised with Greek traditions and Greek customs. And so they did things different. They didn't act the same way. And honestly, the Hebraic Jews looked down on the Hellenistic Jews because they felt that they had compromised, that they weren't true to who they really were. And so there was this division. If you notice, all of the apostles were Hebraic Jews by descent. All of them had grown up in the Holy Land itself. All of them had grown up speaking Aramaic. They were Hebraic Jews. So all of the apostles were Hebraic. And all of a sudden, what you start finding is as the widows are showing up, the Hellenistic Jews aren't getting as much food or they're not getting food at all. They're being overlooked in the daily distribution because people are watching out for my people, right? Now, isn't it amazing to see that within the first months or year of the church, you've already got this division between my people and those people? This could have been something that absolutely destroyed what God was doing. If the church had split between the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews, it would have done tremendous damage to the kingdom of God. And so as this complaint arises, the conflict is that the Hebraic Jews were the ones in charge of the food distribution, and they're not taking care of the Hellenistic widows. So let's see how the apostles handle the problem. Pick back up in verse 2. 
the 12, which is talking about the ones who had followed Jesus and Matthias that were added in together, summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Interesting thing to notice, by the way, those deacons that they set aside all have Hellenistic names. Those are all Hellenistic names. So what they did was they grabbed some Hellenistic Jews and put them in charge of the food distribution to make sure that it would come out even. Fascinating. What does all of this mean for us? You're like, great, I'm glad that the early church figured this out. Well, let's make three observations about what this means for us as a church. The first observation that we can make out of this is, number one, there are more needs in a church than a pastor can meet, okay? There are more needs in a church than a pastor can meet. Now, um, as you look at this, we, we see that the apostles realized there was more going on than they could adequately care for. At this point in the early church life, they hadn't set aside men as pastor, elders, shepherd folks, so the apostles were serving in that role. Now, listen to me clearly. I am not an apostle in the way that those 12 were, okay? Now, I've been called by God to spread his word, so in a sense, I'm an apostle, but not like that, okay? These were unique guys that were serving a couple different roles, But what they found was there was more going on in the church than what they could adequately do, what they could adequately handle. When they mentioned that waiting on tables there in verse 2, it said, The twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, It would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Now, they're not talking about being a server at a restaurant, right? Like, that's the immediate picture that you get. Like, uh, so what were they bringing them in and serving them meals? And you can take your order. You want lemonade? What do you want? Um, That's not what they're talking about, about serving on tables. Uh, They when it talks about overseeing the actual tables, they were overseeing where the funds and the supplies were administered for the widows. So this is talking about waiting on tables as far as sitting there and administrating over what was taking place and who was getting what and how that was being handled. The apostles said it wouldn't be right for us to give up preaching to be able to wait on tables. Now, at first glance, that seems kind of arrogant, doesn't it? I mean, are you saying you're too good for this? Well, we, we know that that can't be the case. Because these are the same guys who the night before Jesus was betrayed and killed on the cross for us, we know that he knelt down at these very same guys' feet and washed their gross, nasty, disgusting feet. He served them and took one of the lowest roles of a household servant and took that to show them that even as apostles, the ones uniquely called by God to take his word to the world, They still needed to make sure that they served just like Jesus served them, okay? So they're not saying that they were too good for it. It's simply that God had called them to do something different. Again, look at verse 2. It said, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Then verse 4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. They knew that the best way they could serve the church was in prayer and in preaching. Taking time every day to oversee the widow's ministry would keep them from doing what God had equipped them to do and what the church needed them to do. So as we look then at what God's called me to do as your pastor, 
I believe that this is a good description for me. In fact, I had to reevaluate my own schedule this week and my own priorities as I was looking at it because in a similar kind of way, my primary call is to pray and to preach. Now, I'll give you a running guess as to which one comes easier for me. Considering the fact that I talk all the time, even when I'm asleep sometimes, ministry of prayer is really hard for me. It's something I have to actively work at because life gets busy and I don't know about you guys, but prayer sometimes feels inefficient, right? I'm not doing anything. I'm just talking to God and I, you know, I could be making a phone call. I could be doing, but the apostles realized the most vital thing that they could be doing to serve the church was to pray, to preach and share the gospel. That the ministry of the word involves both the preaching to the people and sharing the gospel outside these walls. So in the same kind of way, that needs to be my priority as a pastor. That, that needs to be what God's called me to do. In fact, that reminds us of how Jesus structured the church. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, it talks about Jesus and says, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, which by the way, the grammar seems to put those two into one role, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ. Now, leave that passage up for just a second there, Alex. My job, my calling, from what I understand this passage to say, is not for me to do all the work of the ministry. My calling as your pastor is through my prayer, my preaching, the other ways that God's called me to exercise oversight over the church as a, as a ish, bishop, overseer, another word that gets used. My calling is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Jamie got mad at me last week. I woke up at 3.30 in the morning last Sunday, or last Sunday morning. That's very unusual for me. You know why? Because there were things that I had taken on that I should not have. There were things that somebody had, had said that we needed to have done, and instead of following through the week of and getting somebody else to do it, I woke up at 3.30 in the morning thinking, oh no, what are we going to do? Now, at 3.30 in the morning, it's a little too late to do anything about anything. Easter Sunday morning is coming, and there's nothing to do about it. So I got here, and I was talking to Jamie, and he was asking me how it was going, and I said, well, this is what's going, and I've got this going on, I've got this going on, and, and I just I don't know how we're going to get this done. You know what happened? He told me to stay in my lane. He called his wife, and Miss Kelly went out and took care of something that I couldn't do on my own and did it way better than I would have done, Right? I was stressed because I hadn't asked anybody to decorate the sanctuary. So you know what happened? I got here and I pulled out the boxes of decorations and I was fumbling through them and Teresa walked in with a look of disgust and horror on her face and I said, fix this, right? Because God's not equipped me to decorate the sanctuary well. God's not equipped me to make sure that our kids have something cool to take home with them on Easter or something to keep them engaged during the service. But you know what? God's equipped other people to do those things. So my job is to not wake up at 3.30 in the morning thinking, how am I going to do this? But instead, on Monday, the week before, say, hey, Kelly, would you be willing to do this? Or, hey, Teresa, would you be willing to come in and decorate? My job is to equip you to do it. Because you know what I find out? Y'all like to do things. Isn't that crazy? And you know what? You do them a thousand times better than I do. Absolutely. Absolutely. I will own that. <laughs> if you had seen the garland that was hanging on the cross, you would have been appalled. But Teresa made it look great. See, my job is to be the pastor and teacher 
who gets to teach you who God is and what he's calling you to do. And then my job is to help you find a place to take what he's doing in your life and use it, whether that's here in the church, whether that's around the world in missions or anything like that. Because, see, there's more to be done than what I can do. I can't do it all. And I'm so grateful for all of those who are jumping in and serving in all kinds of different ways, some of whom who would get mad at me if I said something about it from the pulpit. And if you're already mad at me, I'm sorry. But God works for all kinds of different people because there's more needs than I can meet. Now, as you look at that then, my job is to equip folks for the work of the ministry. So my, I'm called to pray and teach and lead to equip you to find places that God's uniquely, uniquely abled you to serve. As you do that, the church gets stronger, healthier, and honors Jesus better. Now, here's what that means. I can't meet every ministry need. I can't make every phone call. Once the hospitals are open again for visitors, which I know we're getting close to that now, I I can't be at every hospital room. I can't be at every surgery. Especially when I think about the 134 folks that were here Sunday, there's no way that I can effectively minister. By the way, you know what the, the average size of a church is? 75 people. You know why? Because one person can only effectively minister to 75 people. We got more than that, guys. You know what that means? Something my wife has said for 16 years that we've been dating and married, I need help, <laughs> right? <laughs> I need a lot of help. It's physically impossible for me to meet every need. And although our church isn't as large as some, there's still more people that God's put in the church family than I can adequately minister to. Even if I were able to meet every ministry need, it would keep me from spending the time that I need to in prayer and preparation for teaching God's word, which is my primary calling. That's why this passage is so wonderful. Because the second observation that we make is that there are godly men whom God has equipped to help. There are godly men whom God equips to help. Now, Again, we're all called to serve the church in different ways, but there is a unique group of men that the church set aside in this instance and that we set aside to serve these needs in unique ways. Pick back up again in verses three through six. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to the the prayer and ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole company, so they told Stephen, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, this is what we as a church have asked you to do last fall, where you prayerfully selected men in the church to serve in a unique way. And in just a minute, we'll talk about the character that these men must have, but it's worth noting here who the apostles didn't ask for. They didn't ask you to set aside the biggest givers the most well-liked, the most influential, the smartest, or even the best teachers. They didn't ask folks who had been here the longest. What were the primary criteria? Well, verse 3, men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom. Good reputation, wise, and full of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'll start with the idea of being full of the Holy Spirit. Being full of the Holy Spirit is the idea of, of like a hand filling a glove. You know, a glove can't do anything on its own if it just lays there. But when the hand is in it, the hand can move the glove, and the hand can cause the glove to do great things, right? If you put gloves on Kirk as he plays the piano, that glove would be able to play piano wonderfully well. 
In the same kind of way, when we talk about the filling of the Holy Spirit, it's the idea of living in such a way that we're yielded to him so that he guides us, so that he leads us, so that he directs us, so that he accomplishes what he desires through us. The men that we have serving as deacons currently, and Doug, as we're adding deacon, as adding him as a deacon, meet these criteria. They are men who are full of the Holy Spirit. They are men whose wisdom I rely on often. And they are men who I believe are, have a good reputation with others. That's why you appointed them. The idea of being full of the Holy Spirit, like I said, God moving you. That's why as you look at the list of responsibilities of a deacon, here's what we've articulated as what we believe are the responsibilities for our deacons, okay? These should be up on the screen for you here. Number one, a deacon must set a spiritual example through personal spiritual disciplines, including prayer and Bible study. The primary responsibility that our deacons have is to set a spiritual example through their personal spiritual disciplines. You will never grow stronger than your own personal prayer life and your time in the Word. It's kind of like you can't lose weight without diet and exercise, right? I mean, it's just how it is. No matter how you dress it up, if you want to lose weight, you eat less or you eat differently and you work out more. That's just what it is. You will not grow as a believer without prayer and without reading your Word, reading the Bible, okay? So gentlemen, as God calls you to serve as a deacon, your primary responsibilities is to make sure that you are taking care of your own personal spiritual health, okay? As we mentioned, these men were the first to serve in the role that would become official. Once the office of deacon was established, Paul actually gave a longer list of what their character qualities should be. First Timothy chapter three, wow. I apologize for how tiny that is. Usually it breaks it up in different slides, but First uh, Timothy chapter three, let me read it to you. Deacons likewise should be worthy of respect, not hypocritical, not drinking a lot of wine, not greedy for money. By the way, that not drinking a lot of wine includes beer, liquor, alcohol. Like, oh, I don't drink a lot of wine. I drink a lot of whiskey, but not a lot of wine. Okay. Holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They must also be tested first. If they prove blameless, then they can serve as deacons. Wives, likewise, should be worthy of respect, not slanderers, self-controlled, faithful in everything. Deacons are to be the husbands of one wife, managing their children and their own households competently. For those who serve well as deacons acquire a good standing for themselves and great boldness in the faith that's in Christ Jesus. Now, we don't have a lot of time to go into all of these different qualifications and what they mean, but I can tell you as, as their pastor, I believe that each of these men and their wives fit these categories. By the way, the wives there is, I believe, referring to deacons' wives. And the reason for that is a deacon's wife is the greatest asset. Because your wife will notice things that you miss, and she has the ability to minister in ways that you don't. So she is one of your greatest assets. So as we look at this, I will tell you that I believe wholeheartedly with all sincerity that these men are worthwhile spiritual examples for you to follow as a church. Now, with that in mind, then, looking more at what we see these first deacons doing and then what we have called our deacons to do, Number two, we believe that they will be in charge of contacting and visiting those, especially those who are in unique situations of need. Now, and elsewhere, we've defined that as our widows, our elderly, those who have a pressing illness or some other pressing need, maybe financial or a relationship issue or things like that. A deacon's role is to contact and visit those, especially those who are in unique situations of need. 
Now, one of the other things that we have done to aid in that is we have divided up our church among our deacon body. And um, in case you haven't heard from a deacon in a while, it may be that deacon, your deacon was Brett and he's rotated off or something like that. So um, we, we joke about it being draft night, uh, but sometime in the near future, we're going to sit down and make sure that we've got our congregation divided up between our deacons so that they have families for whom they're responsible and they're going to be contacting you just to check in and make sure you're okay. This is going to be especially important because like I mentioned, I'm going to be gone for two months this summer. I'll be out on sabbatical. So these are the men who you're going to be looking to for leadership, for strength, for help. Um, Y'all are awesome and you got it, all right? Their job is to contact and visit with those in unique situations of need and try to see what the church can do to help meet those needs. With that, they're developing relationship with those families that are assigned to their care. Now, looking at the example from our text, we see that one of the major issues facing the church was a breakdown in healthy communication. We have no idea how long the dispute was going on, but if they were like most, the Hellenistic widows were neglected for some time. Something I have found in the 10 years that I've had the privilege of serving here as pastor is that I am the last person to know when there's a problem, okay? Um, So by the time it got to the apostles, it had probably been going around for a while, right? Because that just seems to be how it works. One of the roles our deacons have is to be able to to keep communication going within the church so that we're aware if there's conflict, if there's struggles, things like that. Here's what that doesn't mean. Okay, by the way, we articulate that as this. Help protect and promote unity by facilitating healthy communication throughout the church body and leaderships. Notice that the expectation is that deacons would promote healthy communication. Okay, if you've been a part of a church sometime that had deacons that you were the chief gossips in the church, that is not the role of a deacon. So if you're looking to get the inside scoop, um, if you're looking for somebody to give you the skinny on what's going on or what happened with this person or that kind of thing, that's not what our deacons are for, okay? In fact, by the way, did you know in India, if you gossip, they will remove you from the church? Like in America, typically the only things that can get you actually kicked out of a church as far as church discipline go is some kind of unrepentant immorality or something big like that, right? In India, they put gossip on that level. So a deacon's job is not necessarily to be the one to tell you everything that's going on or to listen to every rumor, okay? Instead, they're going to help mediate conflict between members in a God-honoring and restorative way. They're going to help communicate and touch base both with church members and church leaders about what's going on and doing so in healthy, constructive ways that continues to build the church, okay? Now, that last responsibility um, then that we talk about, in fact, actually, I think, Alex, there may be a second slide that's got the additional responsibilities. Here you go. Um, The last one that we, we talk about isn't one that's not explicitly found in this passage but is beneficial in all of this, and that is assisting those new to Christ and or the church and strengthening their relationship to Christ and his church. As you get added into the church family and you come into a deacon care group, part of their role is to help you to kind of come up to speed a little bit on what's going on. We talk about a lot of that in Discover class, but it's kind of their job to also to help be that primary point of contact. So if you're like, hey, when does this happen or how do we do this? Um, Your deacon would be the person who would help you with that. Okay? Make sense? Isn't it awesome that God equips men in the church to serve him in this unique way? I'm really glad for that. Because see, our deacons will be helping connect with our guests, help them find God's leading, help them stay connected as members in the church, help communication to flow freely, and to minister when needs come up, to be able to come alongside and care for and love them and pray with them. By the way, something you guys don't know that happens. 
our deacons have an app that we use to talk back and forth. So when you call your deacon and you say, hey, Sean, I've, or you say, you know, Randy, I've got this going on. I've got a surgery coming up or um, we're having this struggle with financially or things like that, not in a, in a gossipy kind of way. Often what happens is our deacons will jump on our group chat and they'll send out a message to all of the deacons saying, hey guys, I just got a call, like let's say from Gilda and Gilda's daughter has been battling cancer for the last few years. And so when Gilda's deacon checks in, he comes back and says, hey guys, here's an update on Gilda's daughter, Donna, so that we can all be praying for and ministering to each other. By the way, we're going to hear this tomorrow night at our deacons meeting, but they're going to hear it now. One of the other things that our deacons are going to be doing is weekly, we're going to have one of our deacons leading the church in prayer as well so that you can get to know them better and so that they also can, you can see how God's working in their hearts through the way that they lead the church in prayer for our opening prayer for our services. Like I said, they were going to find that out tomorrow night anyway. So they found out today. <laughs> Isn't it fun? Are y'all Okay. Look, I know that this is a lot of material and it's not as motivational as a lot of our messages, but here's the thing. Here's why this is so important. The church in that day was getting ready to split wide open and it would have destroyed what God was doing in and through the church in Jerusalem. But what happened? Well, once the apostles recognized there were more needs than they could meet, and they recognized that there were men that the church set aside that God had equipped to meet these kind of needs in the church, what happened? Well, when they do... When they serve in those ways, the church can move forward. The church can move forward. Look at verse 7 again. So instead of splitting, so the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number. And even a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. This could have been a massive disruption to what God was doing through his people. But instead, as the church appointed godly men to come alongside to meet these needs, the church was able to keep moving on with what God's called them to do. And as they did, they saw God continuing to work, God continuing to save, God continuing to restore. So why do we have deacons? I've had people tell me before, oh, deacons are an old-fashioned way of doing church. You shouldn't have deacons because, guys, listen, the Bible says that there's a role in the church, and that's the role of deacons. We have deacons because I need them. Not to tell me what to do, because that's not the role of a deacon. Although they do offer their wisdom, they offer their insight, and I often bounce ideas off of them. They know more about what's going on in the church than anybody else does. Their job is to meet the needs and extend the work of the ministry so that lives get transformed so that people come to realize that God loves them and they're loved by their church family as well, both inside the church and beyond. So that I can preach, so that I can teach, so that I can be involved in what God's doing in the community. Now that the community is starting to open back up, what can we see God do when we know that things are taken care of here? I heard somebody one time say, you can judge the health of your church by the way you would answer this question. In a hypothetical situation, say that your deacon chairman, we call him a lead deacon. Mike Montgomery is our lead deacon. And let's say that the lead deacon's wife was going in for heart surgery that she had a very high probability that she might not come out of. And as you're loading up in the car to get ready to go to the hospital to be with them and pray with them, your neighbor who you've been trying to share the gospel with for years comes out and starts a gospel conversation with you while you're loading your car. 
if you stay and you lead that man to Christ, the reaction of your deacons tells you the health of your church. I can say beyond a shadow of a doubt, the men that God has called to serve this church would rejoice over the fact that I had the privilege of sharing the gospel with somebody because they recognize the priority of making sure that the word is proclaimed. They would take care of the needs. They would come alongside and do whatever it takes. As a pastor, you have no idea what freedom that gives me to see God at work. So here's what I want us to do. I want you to realize this. As we've talked about deacons, I want you to be reminded of the fact this service that God's called deacons to do for the church is simply to model what Jesus has already modeled for us. Mark chapter 10, verse 45 said, Jesus said, for even the son of man, talking about himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Not only was he the ultimate example of a servant, he also actually does something that none of us can do. Our sinful, selfish choices had separated us from God and Jesus came to bring reconciliation. The only way he could reconcile us to God was to take our sin and die in our place. So when Jesus died on the cross, he rose like we said last week, three days later to show that the penalty of death had been paid and now he offers you his life in return. So in light of a God who served you that way, first off, you have to decide, have you ever surrendered to the God who served you that way? If you haven't, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to give us just a minute here. We're going to take some time to respond to God, and then we've got a little bit of of a thing that we're going to do after our invitation to to set uh, Doug and Roberta aside in a unique way. But then during this time, I'm going to be down front. If you want to talk to me about what it means to follow Jesus and how you can know the God who served you that way, I'd love to talk with you. But if you're here today and and you know Jesus is your Savior and Lord, then, then here's my question for you. First off, if God were to call you to be a deacon, Now, we believe that this is an office just for our men. Uh, Scripturally, we believe that that's the precedent that God set. Would your character be such that you could lead in this capacity? If not, what do you need to change? Where should you be serving? Where's God called you to use your gifts, your talents, and your abilities, and you've just been waiting for somebody to ask? Hey, guys, listen. um, I'm asking right now, okay? If you've had a way that you want, you feel like God's leading you to serve, talk to me about it because I would love nothing more than helping you figure out how to make that happen, all right? Now, where do you need to serve? If you're already serving the ways that God's called you to serve and and you're doing what you believe God's called you to do, then my question for you too is, how often do you pray for your deacons? Now, you may not have known until today who they were, And that's my fault for not keeping them up in front of you more often, which, like I said, that's why they're going to be up in front of you every week. My question for you, though, is how often do you pray for these men? See, there's a thing that happens when you get into church leadership. You start knowing the ugly. You're a part of discussions you just rather not know about. You see lives that are in really bad shape. I've heard people describe it as the burden of knowing. That can be really hard. So when's the last time you prayed that God would help the deacons to be able to reach out and minister, that they would be able to shoulder that weight? Because see, when our deacons are serving well, 
the church can keep moving forward, seeing God do great things. So I want you just to go ahead and bow your head and close your eyes. We don't have a response song today. I'm just going to have Daniel come down and he's going to play for us. What do you need to do in response? Do you need to surrender to Christ as your Savior and Lord? Is there a place that God's been laying on your heart that you need to serve and you just have been holding back on it and you've been dragging your feet because you don't know how to get started? Well, the first step is to get in touch with me, okay? If you need to, the church phone number is up here on the screen behind me. Give me a call. Shoot me a text. Send me a smoke signal. I don't know. We'll make it work. But today, maybe you need to commit to serving whatever capacity God leads. And then I'd also encourage you to pray for these men. Pray for Gordon, for Tim, for Mike, for Randy, and for Doug as they serve the church this way. I'm going to pray for us. And then after I pray, you just continue with your head bowed and your eyes closed and do business with God. And then we'll have a brief ceremony to conclude our service this morning. Father, we're so grateful for the fact that you love us and that you set the primary example of service by dying in our place. That's a big deal. Dying to self is really hard. So I thank you for these men who you have set aside to serve you as deacons. I thank you for Doug, who you're adding to the team. I thank you for Randy. I thank you for Tim. I thank you for Gordon. I thank you for Mike and the way you've equipped him to lead our deacons. Would you take these men and use them in such powerful ways for your kingdom, for your glory, that there wouldn't be a single person that comes through this church who would leave not having been loved or cared for? God, would you be with their wives that you would help them to support and to come alongside and help them and encourage them? God, would you use our deacons for your name and your glory in great ways so that your church would grow, so that you would be exalted. Help us to serve as you see fit.